Good morning. We'll start in Genesis uh, 29, verse 31. As we look at the text today, we're going to see that there's discord in the family. The title of the message. In every family, you're going to have periods of time where there's discord. And it's my prayer this morning we'll see from the Word of God what some of those symptoms look like and how we ought to respond. Two things present themselves in this passage. Number one, God is involved in the lives of His people. Number two, people are by nature sinners and self-interested. And the people in this passage, they were God's people, part of the covenant He established with Abraham and his descendants. You see that in Genesis 17, 9-11, where God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep My covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout your, their generations. This is My covenant which you shall keep between Me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between Me and you. See, this explains why we see the kind of involvement that we do with God and these people. And we also see a kind of competition between the women. Jacob's two wives. We've been told that it's not good to compare oneself against others. And within the company of saints, specifically not to think too highly of ourselves. It's not an easy thing to do. We are naturally inclined to think very highly of ourselves. Uh, there is no man who hates his flesh but loves it. That's the core problem revealed in this passage. Now, that second, that uh, hymn we sang from was it First or Second Samuel, verse two, chapter two, verse two. There is none. Holy like our God. There is none beside Him. And the tendency we have as people, humans by nature, is to kind of reduce God into something that we can manage. A God who doesn't offend, a God who doesn't know, a God who doesn't care. But that's not the God we see in Scripture. Yahweh did not condemn men having more than one wife in these ancient times. You recall from last week I read to you out of the Mosaic Law, he even made provision to make sure that the firstborn child, if it was from an unloved wife, would have the firstborn blessing, that men would not be allowed legally to shove the unloved wife aside so that they could care and bless the children of the loved wife. But what we see in this passage is how going beyond the one-woman, one-man marriage construct adds to the complexity and the conflict of life in the family. Now, we don't find in this passage, but we find out later in Scripture that the sons born that we're going to read about, they are the head of the twelve tribes of Israel. Sons from the beloved wife, sons from the unloved wife, and some sons born to two servants or slaves of these women. Perhaps, I'm thinking, perhaps this mixed bag of men that would come from these children 
foreshadows the mixed bag of people in the new covenant. People from every tribe, people, and language. God's plan is being unveiled here. Bit by bit. In the mundane details, the tawdry details of strife in Jacob's family. So I'm going to look at this in six chunks, and I call them rounds one through six. And this is not to make light of the situation, but to really reinforce the seriousness of it. We have a battle going on amongst the people of God here. First, let's look at what I call round one in chapter 29 of Genesis, verses 31 through 35. And I've got my Bible open to Exodus, and that will not work. Was not wearing my glasses when I opened it this morning. Okay, chapter 29, this looks familiar. Starting in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb. But Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben, for she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time... My husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Omniscient and omnipresent, the God of heaven is close to his own, paying attention and intimately involved whether we realize it or not. We go through trials in our lives. God is not ignorant, not far off from us. He comes to Leah, unbidden, and he has compassion on the unloved wife, and he opens her womb. Leah had four sons, and we're not told how much time has passed in these six verses we just read. At least four years, maybe longer. Good long time. Leah is having children, having male children. Rachel is barren, it says. Rachel, the loved wife, is barren. And Leah recognizes Yahweh's role in giving her these children, but it's not until the fourth child, Judah, It's not until he is born that we see her praising him. Her focus from the first child through the third is on herself. Surely my husband will love me now. I have given him three sons. See, this, this is the human perspective. Love me for what I can do for you. Accept me for what I do for you. This is how business operates, is it not? What have you done for me lately is often the call we hear in the business world because the expectation is you will get my affirmation if you do good things for me.
when her fourth child is born, not a word in our text about what Leah had done or how it might even affect her relationship with her husband. But she sees this fourth son and God fills her heart with praise for him. Not what he's done. Just praise God. And see, this ought to be the heart of every child of God is to be thankful for what He's given us, but to praise Him for who He is, not simply for what He does for us. You love that child, do you not, my brother? God is good even if He had not given you that child. But now that He's given you that child, you see more and more how glorious He is to create life and to equip people to be mother and father and raise up children properly. And it was after she arrived at this place of peace with God, praise God out of a heart of love, instead of trying to prove herself to her husband, Leah stopped having kids. Four sons. Gets to the point of being honest with God, and she stops having kids. That's round one. Let's look at the next, the first eight verses of chapter 30 for round two. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So she said, here is my maid, Bilhah. Go into her, and she will, bear she will bear a child on my knees, that I may also have children by her. Then she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel has said, God has judged my case, and he has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again, and Jacob bore a second son. Then Rachel said, With great wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and indeed I have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Rachel's envious of her sister, of Jacob's first wife. She's hysterical, in fact. Give me sons or I will die. Young's literal says sons instead of a child. Either word is appropriately interpreted from the Hebrew. But sons is what was promised, what is necessary. Not only were sons the favored children in this culture, in the context of God's promise to be fulfilled through Jacob, having a son was crucial. Jacob rebukes the wife he loves, reminding her who gives life and who opens or closes the womb. But, you remember a long time ago, Father Abraham, given the promise in the first place, Sarah's going to have a son. Sarah's barren. What does she do? Take my slave, Hagar. Same thing going on here. Same attitude. Same cultural acceptance. 
Rachel gives her servant to Jacob in the hopes of having a surrogate son. And when Bilhah gives birth to a son, Rachel boasts that she has been vindicated. God has judged my case and has heard my voice and given me a son. And after the second son, Rachel boasts that she has wrestled with God and with Leah and has won the game that she's conjured up in her own mind. It's this competition going on between women. Rachel has yet to have a son. She has yet to have a child. But her, her slave, her servant, bears two sons. She wins. That's her attitude. Matthew Henry says that envy is grieving at the good of another. Envy is grieving at the good of another. You see a brother prosper. And you don't like it because it wasn't you. And you want what he's got. That's envy. He says, no sin is more hateful to God. No sin is more hurtful to our neighbors and ourselves. She considered not that God had made the difference and that other things she had the advantage. See, here's Rachel. She's the loved wife. And she's angry and she's envious and she's spiteful against her Sister, she calls her, the other wife of Jacob, because she's given him all these sons. And the the loved wife is kind of sitting on the outside. This is how natural man sees things. Everything in relation to self. I am the center of the universe. And what happens and how I evaluate it is determined and evaluated on how it affects me and how well it makes me look. And how comfortable I am with the results. Has no regard to the Creator or to others. Except how they may benefit me. This is Rachel's attitude here. Round 3 starts in verse 9. 9-13. through 13. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Now, Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, a troop comes. So she called his name Gad. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, I am happy for the daughters will call me blessed. So she called his name Asher. Not to be defeated in this competition with her sister, Leah gave her serpent to Zilpah. Leah's womb has been closed. She's not going to sit idly by. She's going to go the same route Rachel did and give her slave to her husband to have children. And she gets two more sons by proxy. And her focus is back on herself. Leah, who came to the point of praising God, is now looking at herself. I've delivered a troop, Gad. The women, the other women in the clan are going to call me blessed. I'm happy about that because her slave has produced children. She delights in her good fortune and she delights in her reputation Amongst the other people in the clan. 
satisfaction from what others think is a fragile thing. Again, from Matthew Henry, he says, It is sin and folly to place any creature in God's stead and to place that confidence in any creature which should be placed in God only. Had not Rachel's heart been influenced by evil passions, she would have thought her sister's children nearer to her and more entitled to her care than Bilhah's. But children whom she had a right to rule were more desirable to her than children she had more reason to love. And as an early instant of her power over these children, she takes pleasure in giving them names that carry in them marks of rivalry with her sister. Now see, if Rachel had the right attitude, Matthew Henry says, she would have seen Leah's four sons as those that she should love. But that's not good enough. She has to have sons that are hers. And so she's in competition. She's angry and she's envious of Leah. Now this is bitterness that can get into each and every one of us just like it did Rachel. And we must take care because the damage that can be caused by this type of attitude will be much sorrow and much division within the family, be it a family of man or the family of God. We cannot sit idly by and allow this type of envy and bitterness to grow in our hearts because somebody has something I don't. And I've got to come up with a plan to get ahead. That's what we're seeing here. And it's not recommended. So let's look on at the next three verses. Now Reuben went into the went in the days of wheat harvest and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, "Please give me some of your son's mandrakes." But she said to her, "Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also?" And Rachel said, "Therefore, He will lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. Some time had passed. Reuben is big enough to go out of the field by himself. Eight, nine, ten years old. We don't know. He's he's a young man. He's a healthy young boy. He goes out during the harvest and he finds some mandrakes. Who knows what a mandrake is? Nobody really knows. What do you think it is? Yeah, it's like a plant, she said, that helps with fertility. It's an unknown plant, but everybody thinks that either the blossoms or maybe the fruit of it. Uh, the Septuagint calls the mandrakes love apples. So it was either just the flower or the fruit of this plant that could be used, they thought, as an aphrodisiac. Rachel sees these mandrakes that Reuben brings in and she covets them. Note Leah's attitude. You've already taken my husband. Now, you're not also getting my son's mandrakes. You got chutzpah, girl. It ain't going to happen. Rachel reveals a mercenary heart. You, you can, you can bed your husband. (laughs) 
One wife to the other wife. You can have our husband for the night if you give me these mandrakes that your son brought in. Rachel wants every advantage that she can put her clammy little hands on. God's people... Now see, God's people aren't always saints. God's people in the Old Covenant, uh, most of them weren't saints. God's people in the New Covenant... All are saints, but sometimes we don't act that way. God's people often think that He needs our ingenuity, and He needs our wisdom, and He needs our physical prowess in order to make His plans work. We've seen that repeatedly so far in Genesis. Do you try to help God out? Do you try to think? See, here's one thing I've mentioned before. The Bible doesn't give us all the information you would, we would like to know in any given place. There's, there's stuff not there that we think we'd like to know. And what do we often do? We often read between the words and come up with some truth that is not there. And we cherish that and we go around telling people what we found in the Bible. It's what God has not revealed to us. We are trying to help God out. Help. We're just trying to help God's people understand God doesn't need our help. God condescends to use us. He condescends to call men as elders to preach and to shepherd His flock. But He doesn't need a single one of us. Not, as Paul said to the, uh, I call him the Oprah Winfrey crowd of his day on Mars Hill, the Aragopolis in Acts 17. He says, God is not like a man who needs anything that human hands could do for him. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He doesn't need anything that we can do for him. He desires that his people trust him. When he gave manna to the children of Israel in Acts 16, he explained to them, why he was giving them manna on six days and not seven days. And on the seventh day, these farmers had to stay in their homes and not tend to their animals. What was his goal in this test that he gave them, this doctrine that he taught him? Farmer, you can't milk your cow on this day. You can't check your fence against predators on this day. You must trust the one who told you to stay in your house. Trust God is what he wants his people to do. One commentator said the desire to be part of what they knew to be God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was likely part of the pressure that these women endured, especially Rachel, who was barren the whole time Leah was producing sons. How often do saints, those of us with the Holy Spirit of God within us, we behave in the flesh just like Rachel and Leah did. And this is a dreadful thing. And it's most harmful to the health of a congregation. We cannot, we cannot abide by this infighting that plagues these two women and Jacob during this time of their lives. So we look at round 5 in verses 16 through 21. When Jacob came out of the field in the evening, 
Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah. And God listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I have given my maid to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Then Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. She called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. The two mercenary wives had reached agreement. Leah pressed this contract on Jacob. The two women, they came to an agreement. Rachel would get the mandrakes. Leah gets Jacob for the night. More than one night, as it turns out. Leah bears a son, her fifth one, and she says that God has paid her wages for giving her servant to Jacob. She says this fifth son that she bore are her wages for having given Zilpah, her slave, to Jacob to bear him some sons. Now, wages are an interesting concept. We read in Scripture, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. That's Romans 4.4. To whom... Does God owe wages? Leah says, God has paid me wages because of what I did. To whom is God indebted that he would owe wages? Another son Leah has, of which she says God has given her a good gift. He's endowed me. God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will dwell with me. She thinks this gift, this endowment is good because of what results it will have in her life. Her husband will dwell with her. She's the unloved wife and she has gained an advantage over the loved wife. Her husband, their husband, will dwell with her. And then this passage ends with later, sometime later, Leah has a daughter named Dinah. You can think in your mind, fast forward to some of the role that Dinah plays in the life of this clan. Let's finish up our text with the last several verses, which I call round six, starting at verse 22 through 24. Then God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb. Interesting here, in just the space of a few verses, God listened to Leah and opened her womb. She conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And in this verse 22, God remembered Rachel and listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, the Lord shall add to me another son. 
Now, again, we don't know how much time has gone by. The Bible doesn't tell us. Some time has elapsed between Leah having two more sons and a daughter. Wasn't a short time. Three years, maybe five years. Some time, some time had gone. It was after this, after all this took place, that God remembered Rachel. He hadn't forgotten about her. Hadn't forgotten about her. God doesn't forget anything. You and I forget stuff because we got faulty brains. God forgets nothing. God puts away and chooses not to think of some things like our sin after we're saved. He remembers it no more, Scripture says. He remembers Rachel. He turns his attention to her. He has compassion on her. She's been barren this whole time. Rachel hasn't had a child yet. Leah's had, I forget the count, six. And the slaves have had two each. There's ten kids there. Rachel hasn't produced one of them. But as he did with Leah, he opened her womb and she gave birth to a son. And she declares that God has taken away her shame. A wife who's not a mother in this culture was a blight on the family. It was a horrible place to be, even though she had no way to remedy the situation. But it was a it was a shame that culture put on a wife who was not a mother, because that was her role. We are supposed to be fruitful and multiply, but we are not. <laughs> we See, just like we can't condemn one person who doesn't believe in God because faith is a gift from God, we cannot condemn a woman who does not have children because it is God who opens the womb. So we must be compassionate with those who don't meet our expectations. But as I see it, Rachel still has her focus on herself. Her shame has been removed. I'm no longer a shameful person. That's me. And she says, God's going to give me another son. And that's the end of our passage. We're kind of just left hanging out there. What you see in the next passage, the next child hasn't come around yet. So, what's the... uh, What's the so what of all of this as we wrap up? This bit of history is not very flattering to the people that, it, that are featured here in Scripture. Tit for tat, each wife comparing herself as a victim, seeing herself as a victim trying to outdo the other. And even when God's hand is recognized, the focus tends to be on self. Each woman concerned about her status and her reputation. It is this kind of discord in a family in which there are no winners. Nobody, not even Jacob, is a winner in this family at this point in time because strife rules. See, God doesn't answer prayers or bestow gifts to feed human ego. He does so to benefit us and others, to humble us in the realization that every good gift comes from Him to be used to honor Him and to glorify Him. And yet, in the middle of all this jealousy, 
we see repeatedly that it is God who draws near and he gives children to these women. He paid attention to his covenant people, most of whom weren't even believers in the seed who was promised. But they were in his covenant. And he had given a promise to each of the three men we now call patriarchs of Israel. And he would not permit his word to fall to the ground. That's that's what's behind all of this activity. God is moving through the history of men to fulfill his redemptive plan. Part of which included this promise to Abraham that in you, many nations would be blessed. And so there's got to be people coming out of this family. And so God uses all kind of people. And just like we see in the lineage of Jesus, there's all kind of people represented there. This is God's way of showing us that there is no human being by virtue of his DNA, his ethnicity, his skill, his status in culture. No man is good enough to be a party to God's process and plans unless God condescends to draw near to him. What we should learn from this is what has what does it have to do to us in our day? Here's here's the thing. There's been a family squabble in Jacob's life. We see in these women the same type of sinful proclivities that plague us. And we see in Scripture the call we have is to have unity, not uniformity where we all think and say the same things, but unity based on our position in Christ where we accept one another as brother and sister without regard to these different ideas or different gifts that we each have. We serve one another and not self. We keep the focus on glorifying the Lord in all that we do and say, even though we know that we see in Scripture and we know in our own lives that we fall prey to the same type of selfish ambition revealed in our passage. James 4 the, the James diagnoses our natural condition. Talking to the saints, he says, You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you don't have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask amiss that it, you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It's written to Christians. Friendship with the world. Do you struggle with that? The world clamors for you to think highly of its marketing schemes and its values. Got to have a bigger house. Got to have a nicer car. Got to have the best clothes. Got to have the fancy watch. All these things that the world values puts esteem on its enmity towards God. In those days, when the number of disciples were multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. You remember that scene from Acts? Christians in the camp, first generation saints, many of whom had seen and walked with the Lord, they're bickering over food and stuff. 
In 1 Corinthians, you know this passage well. Paul writes to this, these people, says, Now in giving these instructions about the Lord's Supper, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worst. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. These, these were Christians fixing to take the Lord's Supper, and they were involved in the same petty bickering that Leah and Rachel engaged in. The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper expresses union with Christ and union with one another. And this is why the emphasis is on having a common loaf and a common cup. Selfishness is the human condition. And, and we, we are not immune to being selfish even though we've been made alive in Christ and we have our hope set on that which is unselfish, unselfishly given to us in the grace of Christ. But as with all sin that so easily entangles us, selfishness must be mortified because we can't have unity within the local fellowship if we are focused on ourself. We must seek to honor each more than self, reminding ourselves that the unity within the Godhead serves as a model for us. This, the people in Corinth, they had what Paul called a party spirit. You say, I am of Apollos and I am of Paul. And he asked the question, is Christ divided? Did Paul die for any of you? See, the danger... We can have our favorite preachers. We can have our favorite authors. We can have our favorite positions that those guys represent. And we can get kind of petty and condescending for people who don't have the same enthusiasm for these guys that I do. That's a party spirit. And it's common amongst people. And it is an expression of selfishness. Preferring one's opinion better than others. But he has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You know that from Malachi 6. To be just and show mercy requires that we walk humbly before God, not with lip service, but with a desire for our brothers and sisters to be built up and equipped. In Ephesians 4, Paul said that, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one another in love, diligently keeping the unity of the Spirit and the peace that binds us. Diversity in gifting for unity in service. That's our calling in Christ. Not diversity and perversity for celebrating debauchery. That's the call of the world. The world celebrates diversity. Why? Because they want to celebrate that which is used to be shameful, but nothing shameful anymore. We have diversity and gifts within the body of Christ for a different reason. Because everybody's gift is to be used to build up the body. 
not to glorify self. The world tells us we need to think and speak as the world or we're hateful bigots. The Lord tells us not to think too highly of ourselves because He was hated by the world. Why should we expect anything less? Paul said, if you have a conviction regarding food or holy days, keep it to yourself before God. The man who does not condemn himself by what he approves is blessed. But whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats because his eating is not from a conviction. And everything that is not from a conviction, everything that is not from faith is sin. Attitudes that are not subjected to God are not done in faith. Simple things such as eating. If you cannot with gratitude to God. Paul wrote in another place, everything is clean if accepted with thanksgiving. The, the position that we have in Christ is one of being humble recipients of His grace and not being like the people he wrote to in Corinth thinking they were entitled because they had position or power or money or influence and could eat everything and anything without regard to those who were less well off and unable to fend for themselves. And since we are prone to stumble in many ways, we must be students and practitioners of the Word. The the Word of God, which you might hear in the next hour, is profitable for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we would be complete, fully equipped for every good work. That's the reason that we've been given the Scripture, and that's the reason we've been given one another, to be fully equipped for every good work. And those good works are what build up the body of Christ, not self. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, none of this is possible without the Spirit of God. If you have not the Spirit, you cannot walk this way. If you have the Spirit, you have no excuse for not walking this way. And so let's not entertain our excuses, but let's focus on what God has equipped us and called us to do. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus says, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What does it look like to have love for one another? Galatians 6.2 Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How did Christ love us? Did He bear our burdens? Peter said He bore our sins in His body on the tree. That's about as heavy as a burden as you can imagine. We can't bear one another's sins, but there's lots of burdens we each have. Bear one another's burdens and you fulfill the law of Christ as He bore our burdens on the tree. And this is love reflecting unity that's been purchased for us in Christ. He bore our burdens so that we could do this. This is the way we should walk. Loving one another. Seeking what is best for the other. As Christ did for us. Because He did not go to that cross for His own benefit. He had no need to go to the cross for His own benefit. 
He went to the cross, drank the cup of wrath for our benefit. We should bear one another's burdens, far lighter burdens, because of what He's done for us. So let us work diligently to make peace and keep peace within the local fellowship. Community Baptists ought to be a place where love is known. Where love is the way. Where we do not look at a person whose station in life or whose ethnicity is different from ours and say, no, brothers, none of us are clean enough on the inside to have that kind of attitude. You've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. You look at another brother and you love him because he has been purchased by the same blood. And in Christ there is no difference these petty differences that the world divides people on. And they have no value. They have no currency in Christ. He gave Himself for us. If you've been raised to new life in Christ, the life that you now live is preparation time for the life that you're going to enjoy on the new earth. We should walk now as best we can as we will on that new earth. Because you know, in that new earth... We won't have any burdens that need to be borne by anybody else. We will be relieved from all the emotional trauma, all the physical ailments, all of the mental limitations, the aging, the decaying, all of the ravages of sin could be gone. We ought to be eagerly awaiting that day. If you are in Christ, you ought to be eagerly awaiting, awaiting that day. Because... The author of Hebrews said that the first time he came was to deal with sin. And when he comes a second time, it will not be to deal with sin, but it will be to gather those who eagerly await him. So walk as children of the light. This is pleasing to our Lord and it will complement the gospel proclamation that should be on our lips. Your lifestyle can't communicate the gospel, but your lifestyle can contradict the gospel. And so we ought to live in such a way so that the gospel is not contradicted by how we walk. That's got to be our focus, brothers and sisters. And we do that by loving God and loving one another as He has loved us. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. That's His will for you and me. Let's pray.